Kids, I hope you have a great time in the back. If you're remaining in the room, I encourage you to turn uh, in your copy of God's Word uh, to Matthew chapter 2. If you didn't bring a copy, you can follow along, of course, um, in the bulletins or um, on the screens behind me as well in Matthew uh, chapter 2. Uh, just a few years ago, I was uh, watching television one night, and I turned on one of those music channels, and they had uh, a documentary which uh, chronicled the story of uh, one of the favorite bands that I'd listened to, particularly when I was in, in high school and in college. And it was a documentary that followed the sort of 20-plus years uh, of this band's musical career. And, you know, they had interviews and they had snippets from concerts. But all throughout, they were playing uh, sections of the music that they had performed over their 20-plus career. And I can remember sitting there and watching it and feeling just as I heard the music suddenly transported into the past, uh, really transported back to my adolescent self. I, could, I heard one song, and I just sort of vividly remembered my uh, junior year in high school and everything that was going on. And then they kind of went through, and they played another song, and, and I remember, as if it was yesterday, I remember buying that CD for the very first time uh, when I was a sophomore in college at a Borders bookstore, if you remember these places, and you unwrap the CD and I listened to it while sitting in the coffee shop on my disc man, right? I remember that moment vividly because of that. So I'm watching this documentary. I'm riveted by it, not because it was a particularly good uh, documentary, because, but because I felt like it was chronicling a part of my life, my adolescent years of my life, and all those emotions that I felt during that time of my life uh, sort of came flooding back into my heart as I was watching this show. And I think that's really a testament to the power of music and songs. Uh, music in some ways seems to imprint upon our hearts. It captures uh, feelings, it captures emotions and memories uh, just in ways that other things really can. It's such a powerful art form. And that's why I think the events of the very first Christmas that we look at in the Gospels, I think that's why the events of the very first Christmas are surrounded all with songs. And that's what we've been looking at this Advent season, at the power of songs to capture things that words just fail to really express. And so if you were with us two weeks ago, um, we looked at Mary's song, also called The Magnificent, and her uh, expression of joy upon learning that she will bear uh, the Savior. Last week, we looked at Zachariah's song and all the feelings and emotions that were attached to that song in particular. But both of those songs were songs of tremendous uh, celebration and praise and joy all throughout. But life, we know, isn't always a celebration. It isn't always joyful, which brings us to the song uh, that we're going to look at this morning in Matthew chapter 2. So I'm going to read the entirety of Matthew chapter 2, just so we can understand the context of what's going on in this short song recorded for us. So starting in verse 1, Matthew chapter 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king... Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. 
And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, And they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until... Until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. And when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. This is God's word. Father, thank you so much for the gift of of worship this morning, Lord, an opportunity to uh, sing songs that, uh, to you that speak truth, that imprint upon our hearts, to confess our sins, to be assured of the grace that we have that is found only in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you for the beautiful pageant that these kids shared with us, Lord, speaking your truth from our youngest ones. And Father, we pray now that as we look at your word, um, even the hard parts, that you would uh, show us your truth, show us your character, and increase our awe and affection for you. You are a God who desperately loves us more than we can even imagine, so may we be cherished and refreshed in that great love and in your truth. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. 
Church history has called the event that we just read, uh, church history uh, has called this event the Massacre of the Holy Innocents. And part of the tradition of the church that dates all the way back to uh, 485 CE is a tradition called the Feast of the Holy Innocents, where all sorts of different traditions, the, the Western church, the Eastern church, the Coptic church, have all sort of celebrated and remembered uh, the events of our passage this morning. Now, when I looked through the, the Christmas story again this year and thinking about, you know, how we're, how we're going to walk through the Advent season, I realized that I'd actually never preached on this story before. And by now, I've been doing this for 10 plus years, and I, this is a passage I've never really preached on. And I sort of understood why I've avoided preaching on this. After all, the death of young boys is a hard story. Um, it, it's a gruesome one. It's, it's sort of hard for our brains to get around. And that might be why Matthew is the only one that tells this story out of all the gospel writers. He's the only one um, that writes about this. And because it's so difficult and challenging, I think Christianity, at least modern Christianity, has really avoided even talking about this story uh, when it comes to the Christmas season. And I, I understand that. Christmas is full of, of joy and, and happiness and celebration, and it's hard to, to read such a sobering story, a story that isn't quite so cheery or quite so palatable. We're afraid that it might stifle all the celebration of the Christmas story. But I think I have come around to believe that this is an important story to tell, it's an important story for us to remember and to allow uh, the expression of this story to even bring us comfort in our own moments of pain as we think about the reality of life. It's an important song for us to hear. Now, behind all this is, is a struggle for power from one man in particular that leads to him crushing those who are weak under his foot. And that is a story, the story of a threat to power, crushing people who are weak. That's a story that we've heard throughout history over and over and over again. And of course, we see it in the Christmas story as well. Matthew introduces us to a man named Herod. Uh, Herod was the governor of the Jews, also called the king of the Jews, that was appointed to that role uh, by the Roman authorities who were really in charge. And because he was appointed by the Romans, the Jews didn't like him very much, um, not just because it meant uh, the oppression of the Romans above them, but he also wasn't a man of wonderful character either. He was a man who was an always thirsty for power. Um, he was willing to do anything to protect his power or even to acquire more of his power. In fact, one of the stories that surrounds the Herods and this dynasty of the Herods is one Herod in particular who was even willing to kill his own son because that son threatened his power and threatened his ability to sit on the throne. And so in many ways, this is a, a political drama that starts with a threat like so many other political dramas that we watch in TV or study throughout history. There is a threat in that three strangers come into Herod's court, three wise men, three men from the Orient, the astrologers, all the mythology around these gentlemen. They're from the east and they visit this area. They enter into Herod's court because they had followed a star. And they brought gifts about a savior who was to be born, a new king of the Jews 
who had been born. Now, for Herod, obviously, this was alarming news, and it says even in the passage that he was troubled in his heart along with all of those who were around him, but he was a conniver. He was a crafty man, and so he knew that it was important for him to play nice, but you could even see the wheels were turning in his own mind hearing this news. The wise men spoke about a prophecy, and and Herod gets those prophecies confirmed by the chief priests, and so he begins his plot. He lies and he deceives to do everything he can to get this child, and when those lies and that deception doesn't work, he decides to resort to violence, and he kills young boys. Of course, Joseph, we learned, is warned in a dream, and he and Mary and the baby uh, flee to Egypt. They, in many ways, become political refugees who are fleeing to Egypt until a safer time had come. Now, if that story sounds a little familiar to you, it should. And that's because in the book of Exodus, there was another political threat, and a man named Pharaoh decided to kill uh, Jewish boys as well. But one of those Jewish boys was miraculously rescued a little boy named Moses who would become a great deliverer to the Hebrew people. And so that story should be ringing in our ears as we see Jesus flee to Egypt as Jesus being spared, one who would be our ultimate deliverer, the one who would deliver us from sin and death. But one thing I think it's important for us to not gloss over is the fact that in the process of this story, and as remarkable it is that Jesus was uh, spared, we can't gloss over the fact that many young children died in this story. Historians have looked at this story and they've said, well, there's probably not many kids living in Bethlehem, and so the, the number of children killed, some people say it could have been as small as 12 Uh, Others have looked at this story and said, no, no, there was far more than that. And some say that it could be as many as 140,000 young boys were killed by Herod in this story, executed on the spot. And so whether it's 12 or 140,000, one can only imagine parents that were weeping in the streets because they had lost their sons. Uh, Weeping and crying filled the village because their children had been ripped from them. And so the history of Christianity has called these boys the holy innocents. Some have said they were the the very first martyrs that were killed because of Jesus Christ. But for all those fathers, for all those mothers, for all those brothers and sisters, for all those aunts and uncles, the only song that they could sing in this moment was a song of lament, a song of lamentation. And we hear that song in verse 18 where it says, a voice was heard in Rama, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. You see, as these young parents wanted to give expression to their sadness and their lamentation, they went back to the prophets, and they went to the prophet of Jeremiah, who himself was called the weeping prophet, the weeping prophet. These were words that were taken directly from the scriptures to express their sadness, to express their suffering. 
You know, it sort of makes sense because the Bible never shies away from sadness. If you've ever spent some time in the scriptures, the Bible never shies away from sadness. Unfortunately, I think one of the, the issues of modern Christianity is, is we always feel the need to be sort of joyful and peppy and celebratory. We always need to uh, put on a happy face. But the Bible, if you read it, is never afraid to express pain and sadness. All you need to do is turn to the book of Psalms, which are themselves a song book, and you'll see that there are all sorts of emotions cataloged in this song book, and there are many sad songs of lament that are included in there as well. Just listen to this one from Psalm 6, where David writes, I am weary with all my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all of my foes. That's just one of many songs that express sadness and lamentation. If you keep going in the Bible, there's an entire book of the Bible called Lamentations by that weeping prophet Jeremiah. And even as you come to the Gospels, we look at our Savior, Jesus, who at points himself was overcome by tears and sadness. It's one episode where he's crying over the city of Jerusalem for, for what he sees there and is brokenhearted as a result of it. And at one point, Jesus even cries in front of a friend's grave over the sadness of loss and death. Reminds us that there are times in life where the only song on the playlist it feels as if is a songs of lament. And let's face it, sometimes that is especially true during the holiday season. We sing lots of joyful songs like Go Tell It on the Mountain, which we just sang, and it's proper and right to do so. We sing songs like uh, Joy to the World and all the other happy, exciting songs that come in the Christmas season. Every single Christmas movie uh, seems to resolve happily, even Die Hard, which I know we debate about as to be whether it's a Christmas movie, but even that movie ends on a happy note. We celebrate light shining into darkness, but the truth is, for many people, when it comes to the holidays and the Christmas season, it feels like something more to be survived than one to celebrate. Maybe you've recently lost a loved one, and this is your first Christmas without them. Maybe Christmas comes after a really long and difficult year. Maybe your life just doesn't seem to always live up to the ideal that you'd hoped for, and you feel stuck between expectation and the ideal. Maybe the holidays are a time of loneliness or grief or loss for you, and maybe even as you approach the holiday season, the only song that feels like you can sing is a song of lament. Now, I think what compounds this a little bit for, for people of faith is the unanswered questions that often come with our lament as well, unanswered questions that come from pain. And even as I sort of wrestled with this passage all this week as I was studying and reflecting and meditating upon it was sort of the question of why that kept coming up when you think about this story. Why did these children have to die? Why did these mothers and fathers need to continue their life without one of their children? 
Why was Herod allowed to wield power to this end? Why didn't the Romans step in and stop him? This is what is so hard about pain and lament. We are left with so many unanswered questions, questions that plague our minds that just don't always seem to have an answer. But what we do know, what we do know from the Scriptures is that we serve a God who is acquainted with grief, is what the Scriptures say, a God who is acquainted with grief. And what that means is when we look at Jesus, we see one who had all the answers to the questions. He knew the whys and the whats and the wherefores behind everything that happened around him. And even as we look at him and the Lazarus story, he knew that he was about to raise his friend Lazarus from the dead, but Jesus still wept at the front of, his, of that grave. Even Mary knew that she, could, she got to keep her son this day. This day, her son was spared from violence and from loss, but later she would sit at the foot of the cross. Later, she would see her son prematurely breathe his last. Even our Father in heaven knows what it is like to lose a son. Have you ever thought about that? Even our Father in heaven knows what it's like to lose a son. And so the Scriptures remind us that we serve a God who is familiar, a God who is acquainted with grief. He knows what it feels like. He even sings songs of lament. But what is good news is this, that unlike us, God is not helpless in the midst of that lament and sadness. He's not helpless in the face of pain like we so often feel. Instead, as people of faith, we get to cling to the promises that the Scriptures tell us. One of those promises is in Psalm 34, verse 18, that says this, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and he saves the crushed in spirit. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. And so what that means for us is if you and I are here this morning and all we feel like we can sing is a song of lament, if we're here this morning and we're not particularly looking forward to the remainder of the holiday season, we're just hoping it blows by us really quickly, or even if you're here this morning and you are looking towards the holiday season and you have so much excitement and then some family drama comes in and interrupts it all like happens so often and it all comes crashing down, know that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. He's acquainted with our grief. He is near to the brokenhearted. But also remember what the Advent season is really all about. It's all about waiting, isn't it? That's what that word Advent really means. It's waiting with anticipation. Advent is this waiting season in which we think of all those saints who waited for thousands of years for the Savior to come, and we rejoice with those who got to experience that incarnation. Mary, Joseph, wise men, shepherds, they, get, they got to celebrate the incarnation, the arrival of our Deliverer, and we get to celebrate along with them. But we also remember that we're also called to wait as well. You and I, we wait for that second advent. We wait for that anticipation of Jesus' second coming, His coming once again to bring consummation to His great plan of redemption. 
And here's what's so great about that. We look forward to a day where there will be no more pain. We look forward to a day where there will be no more sad songs, where there will be no more lamentation or crying out loudly or weeping. In fact, we look forward to a day where the scriptures tell us where God himself will wipe every tear away from our eyes. And so maybe today we're sad, maybe today we lament, but we are those who don't grieve without hope, but we are those who grieve with hope, with hope in a Savior who will come and who will make all things right, one who binds up the hearts that have been broken and who wipes away all our tears. And that will be a glorious day. Let's pray.